This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider. Trauma can make a person feel unsafe in their own body. At that point, the enemy that was living outside is now living inside. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we'll talk about how trauma can hurt not only the survivor who experiences it, but sometimes also the people and society interacting with the survivor. There are many traumas, such as childhood and adult abuse, car accidents, surgeries, and war. There are also many ways to nonviolently heal the internal and external conflicts that arise due to them. Suzanne Kreider talks with three guests today. Later, Dr. Josie Chase, an expert on healing intergenerational massive group trauma. Also, Matthew Sanford, a yoga teacher, author, and paraplegic for the last 39 years due to a car accident. But first, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, MD and a pioneer in recognizing and healing trauma and the author of the book, The Body Keeps Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. Trauma is having the experience that overwhelms your coping mechanisms, disrupts your being in such a way that you shut down or get stuck in fight or flight. When you say shut down, you shut down what? You shut down various parts of your brain, you shut down your executive functioning, you shut down your capacity for seeing the future. There's many parts of your being and your brain that can get very affected and it changes your uh, perception of reality. There are different causes of trauma. Some are like a one-time thing and some are repetitive. So talk about a list of the different kinds of trauma. It can be in a chronic abusive situation, you can, it can be a war, it can be a rape, a robbery, uh, seeing your kids being hurt, it's all nasty stuff. Trauma has all these different symptoms. Tell us a few of those symptoms. Being traumatized means that you narrow down your what you see and you tend to interpret a lot of things in terms of I'm in danger, I'm going to get hurt, I'm going to collapse, I'm going to be helpless. So the internal experience is that you're always on guard, you always feel unsafe, and you think that you're going to lose control. Yeah, it, it affects your organism. Many people think that trauma is, about, is a memory about something bad that happened to you. That's not really trauma. Being traumatized means that your body continues to react as if you are in danger. The brain gets shamed, the mind gets changed, and you live in a different reality than the people around you. Dr. Van der Kolk, in your book you write about specific techniques for healing trauma. Mm. What are some of those techniques? Well, again, it depends on where you are in your recovery and your progression into it. One of the most interesting things is that we did a series of yoga studies funded by the National Institute of Health uh, in which we found that really engaging in a yoga practice seems to be more effective than any medication you can take. Trauma is experienced in heartbreaking and gut-wrenching sensations in your body. Uh, So in order to feel better, you need to learn to befriend your body and to feel safe in your body. Uh, so that's why techniques like Qigong, um, yoga, 
may be very helpful to sort of reestablish a loving relationship to your body. Dr. Vanderkolk, in your book, The Body Keeps the Score, you talk about some different modalities for healing, like um, somatic experiencing, mm-hmm. art, writing, dancing. What you're saying is you just keep trying those until you find something. The first thing I talk about is telling the truth. So that for many people, trauma has to do with secrets, with things that you feel ashamed of having done, mm-hmm. that you blame yourself for, that you cannot tell people, having been molested by somebody who you can tell other people about, and being able to tell the truth is terribly important. So that's where therapy comes in, that's where writing comes in, is to be able to find words for this is what happened to me, and this is what effect it has on me. The celebration of the singular human capacity to put things into word and to identify things and to have words for it is terribly important. Not to explain things, but just to describe, say, this is how it is. And that's a very important cornerstone. Then there are ways of, so if there's a lot of memories that bother you, um, something like EMDR can be incredibly helpful to lay your memories to rest particularly adult trauma. So if if things have been okay with you for uh, most of your life and suddenly um, you're in a car accident or somebody close to you gets killed, um, these single incidents are extremely well treated with eye movements. In EMDR, you evoke what you saw, what you heard, what you felt, but you don't talk about it. And then you set up certain rhythms in the brain you activate certain association areas of the brain that allow your brain to know, yes, this belongs to the past and doesn't belong to the present anymore. What what actually comes online is an area in the parietal temporal junction uh, that is an area of your brain that gives you a sense of, I own this experience. And so the eye movements can really help people to process the experience and say, yes, this happened to me, but it happened to me a long time ago, and I own this experience now. So the eye movements do something to lay that memory to rest. Well, so it's, it's not only memory. So the, the, mem- the specific memories can be laid to rest fairly easily most of the time uh, with EMDR. Um, but like what we're working with right now, is that one of the things that people suffer from if after they get traumatized, they oftentimes deeply blame themselves for the role that they play in their own survival. They may accuse themselves of having uh, played along with what happens. As the field evolves, people become more and more aware of how helpful mindfulness is and learning to really sit with yourself and notice yourself. But then as that field develops, people become aware that mindfulness is only useful if it is accompanied by self-compassion, by feeling loving towards yourself. And then we find out that many traumatized people, incest victims, soldiers, and other people actually hate themselves 
for what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And so then the question becomes, how can you put people in a state of feeling deep compassion for you, what you had experienced back then? And that is a very difficult thing. People used to use hypnosis for that, but right now my colleagues and I are studying MDMA for that. Hmm. Uh, so ecstasy uh, can put you in a position that you can lovingly observe the pain inside of yourself without being freaked out by it. Hmm. I said that's not legal yet. We're doing a trial for the FDA to get it legalized. But uh, th- these are the sort of directions that we try to go into is how do we make it possible for people to deal with themselves so they can say it's over. Suzanne went much deeper in her conversation with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk about his take on healing trauma, and we'll hear more from him later in the program. You heard Dr. van der Kolk mention that they're learning that yoga can be as powerful a healing tool as there is in the treatment of trauma. And our next guest knows that intimately. Suzanne talks with Matthew Sanford because he's not only a trauma survivor from a paralyzing car accident at the age of 13, but he teaches yoga to help heal trauma. Matthew, in your book, Waking, you describe how you came to yoga almost 15 years after you were paralyzed at 13. And you write this, If I was going to live, I needed to live the mind-body relationship my life had dealt me. That's a huge insight, even for people with able bodies. But most people really hate pain. So I'm curious, how do you get a trauma survivor to explore their entire experience, which may include pain? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. So my yoga teacher helped me realize that instead of my body being the place that was scary, that in fact, my yoga mat was the safe place. That in fact, even if it was triggering memories, right, that, that there were that I could trust my body because my body is witness and everyone's body is witness, the only true witness to your entire life. Minds go in and out of phase, but bodies don't. And so helping someone reclaim their body, you can reclaim your body without having to go through all your memories. And I think that that's something that people don't fully realize. In order to be grounded, simply grounded in your body, put your feet flat on the floor and, and feel grounded, that doesn't mean you have to travel through all of your times and all of your memories. And that's an important distinction to pass on to people. Isn't there sometimes pain, though, in people's bodies? Oh, yeah, for sure. But there is a place, and this is part of what I do when I teach people with all levels of disability, um, there is a place that precedes pain and, I, and precedes all the difficulties of your life and what's happened in our culture is we've gotten so caught up on the outside we've lost touch with what precedes and i'm very confident i mean i I, even people that have been born with like cerebral palsy that i work with there's a level even when they've been born with their disability helping them find access to the level of them practical level of them that precedes their pain is a huge step towards healing Matthew, I used to think that facelifts were really a waste of money. And I'd have the thought, okay, if they spent the same amount of money on therapy, they wouldn't need to have a facelift. But then in 2012, I had this brain bleed. It affected walking, talking, and I did the same thing. 
I tried to fix my body. Now, I'm not saying you did the same thing, but you did write in your book, Waking, that you tried to overcome the paralysis in your body. Well, the question is, isn't it kind of natural to want to, you know, heal the body? Well, I'm not saying not heal the body. In fact, I think I believe directly in helping the body and having the body heal. So, but what the big difference for me is that the original vision that I've got for healing from the Western medical model was one of reversal. The true healing only meant a reversal of condition, which is just not true. And the other one, the kind of healing vision they handed to me was to overcome my disability. So another, like in my case, it was very practical to make my upper body really strong because I'm paralyzed from the chest down. Make my body, my upper body really strong and learn to drag my paralyzed body through life. This overcoming story is one of the best human stories of resilience we have, except it's not a long-term strategy. You know, you, you can't overcome the only body you ever have. So there's a difference between trying to overcome your body in your experience but as opposed to trying to heal it Hmm. and healing it is a level of letting your body however it is and all of the times in your life become part of the river that you are right and that's a different level of 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 healing so yeah uh, and i wouldn't i'm never going to walk again it's i yoga is not going to fix my body but what can be true is that i can feel whole and vibrant through my whole body like for you too, whatever you went through, I mean, there's a level at which you do want to fix your body to some extent, maybe on the outside more, but there's a way to feel fully whole in the experience you have. And I don't think that's just a psychological insight of acceptance. I think that's a mind-body realization. You also write about will. And I'm curious because it seems like Did your will get you to where you are today? Because you're really well recognized as a yoga teacher and a speaker. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm a very willful guy. Believe me, you know, like that is the truth. Um, So will, again, is one of our strongest attributes as human beings. The question and the problem becomes when it's your only mode of survival, right? For me, my will became my survival default setting. Right. And that can become violent and even destructive. Right. So so where, yes, I mean, life takes will. You got to lean into your life for sure. But there's a way to balance your and temper your will with realizations, for example, of nonviolence and compassion, where that doesn't mean that you're not supposed to use your will and try to change the world. Hmm. It means how you move, how you interact, that can transform even while you're being willful. What happened to me is when I was trying to overcome my paralysis and live the first 12 years of my life before I came to yoga was that when you act just with your will, you lose the beauty of living. Um, You kind of, I call it a survival tunnel. You end up in a tunnel where you're just trying to get through to the next day. You're trying to get through the next thing. You're gritting your teeth. You're not seeing, feeling, smelling, expanding, growing in the same way. And the will definitely is, a, is more of a mental energy. It's something that we inflict on ourselves and on our lives. And so part of it is being able to recognize and master your will, know when you need it, but also know how to balance it and temper it. You write in Waking about nonviolence as more than a moral principle. Could you read that section? Mm-hmm. 
There is still so much to realize. My experience tells me that the silence within us can be experienced energetically as a nourishing sap. When this happens, consciousness changes shape. For example, I have never seen anyone truly become more aware of his or her body without also becoming more compassionate. A mental state like tolerance can deepen into a three-dimensional state of true patience. Nonviolence can become more than a moral principle. It can become an integrated state of consciousness that includes the body. And of course, for good or for bad, the silence within us also contains the opportunity for choice. Is unresolved trauma a cause of violence? Um, I think so. When you are carrying energy that's not in the present, when you're reacting to things that are not in front of you, right, that are not actually what are happening, I think that that, that type of living, um, we are more protective and more angry when that happens. And so, you know, an obvious example would be a, a vet that has had a horrible experience in Afghanistan. And I was just, I'm thinking of one guy in particular I was working with. We are in a restaurant and someone dropped a, a, a fork and he, he just about clocked me and went down towards the floor because it was a sound he wasn't expecting. He wasn't reacting to what was in front of him. His body, his mind, and his nervous system was, was in the past where the IED went off in the poppy field. Right? So he was reacting more violently to a threat that was no longer in the present. So I think that when you are reacting to invisible things trying to protect yourself, you often protect yourself through anger and violence. How do you help a person like that? I think it's important to help somebody realize where the present is and what it feels like. So I believe that someone that's reacting to past trauma needs to find their body, needs to know that the body rather than their enemy is actually the only true witness to their life, to their entire life. And in fact, will do everything. The body will do everything to move towards living always. It's the mind that wavers. And so trying to help someone that has tough memories, I don't think they have to go just right into their memories. I think they have to be able to exercise past times in their life while, while feeling their body in the present. So with like this, the guy I'm thinking about, we did a lot of yoga together and I was trying to have him talk about some of the memories he was carrying, but I was having him stay with me and present and do yoga while we were talking about it. So, for, so he can reclaim the present through his body because his body will always be present in every moment in his life. Matthew Sanford had lots more fascinating conversation with Suzanne. We'll hear some of that later in our program. After a break, conversation with a researcher who's studying historical trauma among Native Americans, African Americans, and other groups who've suffered abuse and hardship throughout the centuries. More on that as well as more from our other guests when Peace Talks Radio continues in a moment.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider. We've done scores of programs in our series dating back to 2002. You can hear them all on our website, peacetalksradio.com. To continue our episode today on healing trauma, Suzanne wanted to talk with Dr. Josephine Chase, a social worker, about historical trauma, because she's an expert on this specific kind of trauma. She talked about the different groups that experience this, and we wanted to hear her perspective as a Native American who heals historical trauma in other Native Americans. I'm Mandan Hidadza uh, from the Fort Berthold Reservation on my father's side, and I'm Hunkpapa and Yankedene from the Standing Rock Reservation on my mother's side. I've heard some different terms. I've heard historical trauma and intergenerational trauma. Which term do you prefer? Well, actually, they're two different terms. Historical trauma includes intergenerational trauma. Historical trauma is the cumulative emotional and psychological wounding across generations and uh and across one's own lifespan as well. You know, genocide, loss of language, removal from our homelands, and so forth, the boarding school. And intergenerational trauma really means the trauma that is experienced from one generation to the other. But um, when a person experiences trauma, they are capable of passing certain characteristics and behaviors onto the next generation if they do not heal their trauma. So we have many American Indian parents who attended boarding school and experienced trauma in boarding school, and they were um, treated harshly, um, abused, and neglected, and that's how they learned to parent, so to speak. And then, so that's the parenting that they then passed on to the next generation. Is it okay for this interview if I call it historical trauma? That's perfect. And tell us some other groups. You've mentioned that Native people experiences. What are some other groups who experience or have experienced historical trauma? Well, thank you for asking that because we talk about massively traumatized groups as well who've experienced uh, genocide and some of the similar effects as American Indians. And those would be the African Americans who experienced the diaspora of slavery, Japanese Americans who experience the discrimination and internment in internment camps, also Latinos who experience also um, massive discrimination, trauma, displacement. It's so hard because it seems like many people who've experienced historical trauma have to live in two worlds. They live in the world that's kind of like the dominant culture if they go out and into it, and they live in a world where they have their own culture. I'm curious, as a social worker, Dr. Chase, how you help people deal with those two worlds. Well, I like to emphasize that I believe because of that requirement that we are very um, intelligent, skilled, um, kind of agile people, (laughs) 
And so that we are able to do that and to focus on the strengths that we bring with us because of that and also the strengths that we bring from our traditional culture and our knowledge so that, um, you know, actually we're in some ways um, better prepared to deal with certain things, um, you know, because of the different requirements that it takes to to be able to maybe speak two languages, to live, you know, in a collective um, community environment or to live in a rural reservation area, but also be able to go off to university and um, live in the Anglo world and succeed. So we also believe that we have to try harder because um, of the discrimination that, you know, our intelligence is not always recognized. The quality of work is not always accepted. So that's kind of a given, and I would um, venture to guess that that is the same for other people of color as well. Dr. Chase, you're a social worker, and you've done decades of work on healing historical trauma. In fact, you're part of developing an intervention called HTUG. I call it HTUG, and it stands for Historical Trauma and Unresolved Grief. What is that, and what changes do you see in people as a result of that? The HTUG model um, was conceptualized by Dr. Maria Yellowhurst Braveheart, who's been my colleague for since oh, the mid-1980s, and we've worked together on this concept and this project and developing this healing curriculum. It integrates basically our um, traditional healing practices along with Western psychotherapy, and we combine those two into a curriculum that has shown to be effective in helping our Native people heal from the effects of, you know, the historical trauma, the depression that accompanies that, the sense of loss, the unresolved grief that perhaps our great-great-grandparents experienced and were unable to heal from because of the... Um, taking away our traditional spiritual practices. So we've um, utilized some of our, our ceremonies, such as inipi or the sweat lodge, smudging, prayer, songs, into psychodynamic and cognitive behavioral um, interventions to, that best fit our people. And we've had a really um, fantastic response. I would say that, you know, people have reported that their depression has reduced, that they feel more uh, a sense of hope, you know, just a lessening of the symptoms of depression and, and trauma, and that they feel hopeful for the future, that they learn new ways of thinking, new ways of handling situations, increased self-esteem. So I, I wanted to say that our um, intervention consists of four components. 
The first is confrontation with the past, and that's really confronting our history, looking at what happened to our people, and that, in fact, it was genocide, it was approved, you know, by the government, and the policies that were set were to remove our people. And each tribe has their individual experience, so... By the tribe, we address that. We use uh, maybe writings or oral history and videos to kind of elaborate the experience. And a second component of that then is understanding the trauma, to know about trauma, the trauma symptoms, how it affects us mentally, spiritually, physically, and emotionally, and how that trauma was enacted upon our specific community, our families, and individually. And then the third component is releasing our pain. So we learn interventions, we conduct exercises, you know, such as I'll give an example as the trauma graph is to looking at, you know, the trauma that occurred in our life and then to use Western psychotherapy as well as uh, our traditional healing practices to let that go. We have ceremonies for healing trauma and to return the person to a place of balance. We smudge to, you know, let go of the negativity. We use songs for calling forth courage and strength. Then we move on to the fourth component, and that's transcending the trauma. Because our intention has always been to restore our people to fully functioning, healthy, joyful people and not to be stuck in the trauma. Part of that is learning ways to heal, you know, for self-care individually, personally, to develop a self-care plan. And as they're going through the intervention, they also begin practicing some of these healing methodologies you know, the self-care, and they report back to us the effects, you know, that they've experienced of those interventions. And then we look at how they're going to take it home and implement it in their families and their communities. What would you like to see non-Natives do to help Natives heal more? I would like them to be more accepting, to be more open-minded, and to be open to the fact that you know, what happened to our people was, in fact, genocide, and to be accountable and take responsibility, but also to have conversations about it, that we can talk about it. I'm not political, but our government has never acknowledged, you know, the wrongs that have been done to our people. And that would help healing. You're saying if the government said, hey, this is a mess, we really made a mistake, It would help people heal. It would validate, you know, our oral history, our perspective, because we didn't have a say in how this country was developed and what goes into education and what people learn about us. You know, there's it's just very stereotypical or denied, ignored. Dr. Chase Talk a little bit about the traditional protective factors. These are from the seven laws of the Dakota. And I don't want you to 
say anything you can't say, but I want you to pick like maybe a couple of those factors, not all seven, but some that you use a lot. Which ones are most important to you? Well, we use the um, concepts of uh, generosity, which is wachante ognake, and that means to share with others, to share our thoughts and feelings. And um, sometimes, you know, it, it means just um, withholding our opinions as well, but to share and to help others. And then wawa ushila is to have compassion, you know, for our relatives maybe who are having a hard time or not doing so well, or people who maybe are not so kind to us. And then Wowa Yuniha is respect and honor, not only other humans, but all of life, and that, um, you know, we value what everyone has to offer and contribute, including, you know, the earth and the environment and the, our four-legged relatives, the animals and the nature. And... Um, Wawachitanka is to have a great mind, to be patient and silent, to observe, um, and it teaches us patience and tolerance. And then Wawayuniha, uh, oh, Wawahwala, I'm sorry, is humility. Sometimes we need to be silent, to be humble, and to put the good of the whole or the group first in that no one is above another, no, nobody's opinion or uh, plan is, is better than anyone else's. And wo uhitike is um, to have courage, principle, and discipline, to be honest. And this is required a lot to follow a good path in life. And woksape is understanding or wisdom and we seek wisdom through um, being respectful listening and observing and to develop self-discipline so those are some of the um, guidelines or ground rules that we use throughout our intervention and we try to live by ourselves a little more with Dr. Josie Chase later in our program. Also more from both yoga instructor and author Matthew Sanford and trauma healing pioneer and author Dr. Bessel van der Kolk when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break.
I'm Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider, and this is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, and you can hear virtually everything we've done since 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. Today, Suzanne is exploring healing trauma with three fine guests. We'll hear a little bit more from each in the time we have left. First, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, longtime trauma healing researcher and author of many books on the subject, including The Body Keeps the Score. Dr. van der Kolk, being traumatized does not mean a person will be violent. I'm wondering conversely, though, if a person is violent, is that due to some kind of trauma? One of the results of trauma is that it's very hard to regulate your emotions. And so very many traumatized people do become very angry and have very little diff- have a lot of trouble uh, keeping their anger under control. People react to that. So a very large number of traumatized people become terrified of their anger and become mice instead. And they just keep that anger under control, they're always nice, they're always constricted and down because they're so afraid of their emotions because they have seen how much damage their emotions can do. Uh, um, so yes, anger is an issue with PTSD and in fact when we created the diagnosis of PTSD it was in large degree um, because the people who came to see us were telling us how out of control they felt and that they felt that nobody was safe with them. And so anger is a very real thing, both the expression of anger, but also the inhibition of anger. Because anger is a terribly important emotion. Anger is an emotion that lets other people know, don't you mess with me. So it's very important to be able to stand up for yourself. And so many traumatized people who have learned like, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not safe with my anger. Let me just suppress it and suppress it. Set themselves up to be heard over and over again because they don't know anymore when to say, no, stop messing with me. As said, the whole housekeeping of emotion becomes a problem when you're traumatized. Mm-hmm. And what are some healthy ways you teach people to express that anger? Well, it's not an issue of expressing anger. It's a feeling of safely knowing what you know and feeling what you feel. And so we go back to the yoga practices, uh, qigong practices, and we like to also, I happen to love theater for PTSD, where people actually play other people's roles. And even when they cannot be angry themselves, we may give them a role of somebody who has the role of being angry, like Iago or Othello or some other angry fellow, and then they can pretend like they're somebody else and re-experience that feeling of anger in their body and learn to integrate it. Dr. Van der Kolk, in your book, The Body Keeps the Score, you write about social trauma, societal trauma. Is unresolved societal trauma a root cause of war? No, that's, that's too one-to-one. But, you know, the way you organize society has kind of profound effects on how much trauma there is. For example, uh, when I go to Norway, Sweden, Singapore, Korea, Holland, usually the Ministry of Health asks me and people like me, so what are you guys finding about trauma in kids? And they uh, listen and they say, they apply to policy, 
And as a result of them learning this stuff, like the incarceration rate in the Netherlands now is 68 per 100,000 people. The incarceration rate in America is 980 per 100,000 people. And that's the direct effect of policymakers applying the lessons of what we know about trauma to their populations. So as long as we ignore the science of how children develop, how children can be made safe, we pay heavily for it and we'll pay not at the beginning but we'll repay in the end. We put our money into, into prisons and other things instead of in safe schools or material care. So these are political issues that people need to decide for themselves. Can you tell a story or two about specific case studies that inspire you to keep this going? Every week, every day. <laughs> people heal. Um, mm. You know, people can change and process the trauma with EMDR. I do psychodramatic techniques where people get parents that they never had and they get to feel like, oh my God, if I'd had a parent like that, I would feel so loved. In fact, I now feel so loved. Uh, I see people who have been very angry, who deal with the angry parts of themselves, um, feel compassionate for it, and their anger is sort of um, not a particularly big deal anymore. In my work, I see people change all the time. You've talked a little bit about military veterans and the PTSD rate is really high, the suicide rate's really high. Anything else about treatments that are more effective with people who suffer as veterans? Well, you know, there's two things. One is, is there's a lot of emphasis on, on veterans because they're so dramatic, but for every veteran who's traumatized, there's at least 30 kids in America who are traumatized who nobody pays attention to. Uh, so there's a real issue of priorities here. Uh, I was visiting Vice President Pence and his wife in the Vice mentioned, and they wanted me to talk about treatment of veterans. They said, you know, we could, but there really are so many more traumatized kids who have no future because nobody's taking care of them, and really our first priority should be to take care of young kids. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, second, why do kids commit, why do veterans commit suicide? Duh. Because their brain has been trained to be on the alert for danger. And so wherever they go, they are skittish, they are offensive, they are disconnected. And people are not helping them to really feel connected with other human beings. They felt very connected with their comrades in war. And as long as you're part of your unit, you feel, you feel like, uh, like a close unit with other people. You come home and your whole brain is set for war, and you blow up and you shut down and you can make, not make connections with people anymore. So uh, every good program that I know about veterans is not about telling that story of the war over and over again. It's about helping to be there for each other right now and to, as my friend Stefan Wolfert, who is a theater director who wrote his plays about his war experiences, says to do recruitment, to help people to be in civilian life as close and connected to other people as the military so brilliantly is able to do in basic training to prepare people for war. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, author of many books on trauma healing there. 
Suzanne's complete interview with him in our March 2018 episode on the website, peacetalksradio.com. Click on Dr. Vander Kolk's picture for that entire interview. And next, a bit more of Suzanne's conversation with Matthew Sanford, paralyzed from the chest down from the age of 13 in an accident, now a top yoga instructor, speaker, and author of the book Waking, a memoir of trauma and transcendence. Does healing that trauma and coming into the present make a person more peaceful or more compassionate? Well, so for example, I think that most trauma, there's the physical trauma you have, right? Which is whatever that is, right? But then a lot of trauma affects the invisible part of the mind-body relationship, right? The intangible part of what you are, right? So like people coming from back from Afghanistan, the soldiers are being injured in the inv- invisible part of their mind-body relationship. And when that, when that doesn't return, when you can't bring that with you into the present, when you're reacting against that, that tends to make you more aggressive. Not always. Sometimes it makes some people shut down and withdraw, right? So I think that, that, that healing trauma and reclaiming the part of you that got ruptured, the silent, intangible part of you, and reclaiming it for yourself instead of thinking that the world can threaten it, in general, that has a very calming effect. In general, I think that it does make you, instead of like protecting against what scares you, you actually can be more connected with the invisible parts of yourself that allow you to be more connected to people. So yeah, I do think the result, people that are the most compassionate people often have sustained some of the hardest things in, in life. And it's because the trauma opens up a part of their mind-body relationship, I believe, that eventually transforms into, into compassion and nonviolence. Yeah, I heard somewhere that it's sometimes they don't want to call it post-traumatic stress anymore. They call it moral wounding. Yeah, so, but to me, though, see, I think that that's, that's, a, that's a tough Someone shouldn't, I mean, you're not going to motivate someone to be compassionate because that's what they should do. That's why I think compassion and nonviolence are not fundamentally moral insights. They lead to moral actions. I believe that compassion and nonviolence are relationships, total relationships to the world. They're, they are, they're how you live in your body. They're, they're much deeper than actions you should do. And so when you're more compassionate um, and more nonviolent in relationship to the world, you're more open, you're more vulnerable, but vulnerability isn't just vulnerability. Openness is actually strength. I mean, we, we are stronger when we feel more, not when we feel less. And this is a hard mind for, a hard insight for a traumatized mind to realize is that by feeling more, they become stronger. And that's something, that's a realization that the mind can't have only on its own. That the mind needs the body to realize how good and how nourishing being open to the world is. And that's unfortunately one of the big consequences of trauma is they stop receiving nourishment as much. A traumatized person stops receiving nourishment from the world in the same way. That is such a tricky thing to understand 
the relationship between the mind and the body. You just said the mind needs the body. See more about the relationship. Well, I mean, the, the, one of the things I like to say when I'm teaching, for example, in, 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 in yoga classes, when I'm training teachers, um, one of the things I like to say is that your mind is an, your organ of disconnection. That's what it's supposed to do. That's what allows you to judge and interact with the world, is that I'm separate from, from the cup of coffee I'm about to drink, therefore I can drink it. Your mind functions by being less connected to the world. For that, and that's its strength. For that exact reason, the mind is subject to become unmoored and ungrounded. It can get lost in its own in its own circles and, and spirals right so one of the things i like to say is that your body is the best home your mind will ever have in order for your mind to function as well as it can it needs the grounding and nourishment of the body matthew one of the violences that trauma survivors do to themselves and others is creating sort of in and out groups like you're not you can just like fill in the blank you're not um a veteran you're not a brain injury survivor you're not in a wheelchair so you don't understand me because you haven't had the same experience as me now um talk about how you help people let go of that idea one thing about trauma is you're never going to be the same right there's no going back to those state before right and so one of the things about trauma is it opens you wide open to things that you can't see and you can't control, right? And so when, when you get kind of, you know, I say cracked open by trauma, when the, the intangible part of what you are gets cracked open by a traumatic experience, the big craving is for boundary again, to have something protect you from the the overwhelming immensity of what you're feeling and i think that making in and out groups is uh, is surprisingly a very simple way and profound way to actually create boundary again to feel safe because you're with the people that quote get you right so one of the things i believe is is to help someone recognize that there are other ways to achieve the boundary that their mind in particular is craving. You know, one of the ways is through the body. The body gives the mind boundary. But there are other ways too. So, and plus, you know, there are just certain, you know, someone that's been traumatized is going to be healing the rest of their life, right? Um, and, and you've got to let them go through the certain stages they have to go through in order for them to heal. And so when someone's like trying to see the world in in and out groups, for example, I know that what I know when I hear that is they're trying to find their footing. They're trying to feel safe somewhere. So if I can help them feel safe and grounded in a different way, then maybe they won't have to isolate themselves from other people, right? So it's a process though, because however a trauma survivor survives, you have to respect what they've done to get to the day they're at that day, because whatever they're doing, they're doing to survive. That's Matthew Sanford, who wrote Waking, a memoir of trauma and transcendence. More of that interview with Suzanne at our website, peacetalksradio.com, the March 2018 episode. Just click on Matthew's picture for the entire interview. 
We'll close with a bit more from Dr. Josephine Chase, a social worker and expert on historical trauma. You also mentioned Dr. Chase using ceremonies. And I don't want you to divulge anything, obviously, that you can't. But I am curious, tell us how these ceremonies help people. You know, there's certain of the ceremonies allow us to to really be in touch with our emotions and the songs are powerful as well and help us to get in touch with our our deepest emotions and then through through the ceremonies we are able to have a catharsis or a release of those feelings so that we can let them go and leave leave that behind and move forward in a lighter and healthier manner and think more clearly and hopefully make better decisions and have a more positive outlook on life and to feel you know the support of our ancestors and be open to uh, reaching out to you know, family and others who can can support us in, in this current life. Some people often say other people should just get over whatever their trauma is. I'm curious, what would you say to someone who says, well, Indians should just get over it? Well, I have certainly heard that statement as well. You've probably heard the term denial that sometimes people are in denial because of their own feelings of remorse or guilt or sense of inadequacy about addressing, you know, such deep wounding. You know, that's their their method of, of handling the topic. However, I I believe that non-natives and and the oppressor basically also has their own issues to address and to heal, and that until we do that together, you know, with following these laws of courage and compassion and respect, you know, using those as guidelines that we're not truly healing as a community or as a country. Dr. Chase, it seems like people can go through these four steps, and that's about feeling the pain, confronting it, understanding it, then transcending the pain. It just seems like there's also that past part of loyalty to ancestors and what ancestors went through. So there's part of like the past and a part of trying to thrive in the future. How do you help people heal those two pieces? Well, we believe that time is nonlinear and that, you know, we have a close connection with our ancestors so that we have access to, you know, communicate with them. And we also believe that when we do our healing work, we help heal backward and forward so that we're healing past generations and future generations. So people today can actually, is the word get over or heal from historical trauma? What words would you use? Well, I would say heal because in my experience, healing is a lifelong endeavor 
just like we need to take care of our physical bodies, we need to take care of our spirits and our emotions. And so that, you know, we have, um, you don't just go to the doctor once in your lifetime and maybe think about your eating habits once in your lifetime. It's a lifelong endeavor and exercise and so forth. So it is with um, emotional healing and well-being. It's um, an ongoing pursuit. Great. I'll ask one more question, Dr. Chase. What have you not said that you want to include? That I guess I just really um, believe in healing historical trauma, and I've devoted, you know, much of my life to it, and that it's imperative that we do this together, um, natives and non-natives, because, you know, I guess I would say similar to taking care of most of your body, but leaving perhaps an arm uncared for. (laughs) You know, we have to heal the past and the present, but also across um, cultures, across races. And that's, that's true healing. And when we can really see each other as um, individuals and and appreciating who we are, where we come from, as far as ethnicities and difference, that then that's healing. Dr. Josephine Chase. As with all of our guests, you can hear Suzanne's complete interviews on the March 2018 page, Healing Trauma at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. See photos of our guests, read and share transcripts, sign up for our podcast, order CDs, and make a donation to keep this program going into the future, all at peacetalksradio.com. Support comes from listeners like you, also the McCune Charitable Foundation and the Albuquerque Community Foundation and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.